with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 43. So Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 43. Well, as important as it is to know what you believe, it's also and just as important to know why you believe it. It's no secret there are a lot of different views of the world out there. And while some people idealistically argue that those different views are each equally valid and ought to be accepted as such, it doesn't take long to realize that that really isn't possible. After all, God either exists or he doesn't. Jesus is either God or he's not. There is either right and wrong or there's not. Questions like that, they need to be asked and they need to be answered. The truth is matters. True faith is built on truth. It's important for followers of Jesus to think hard and and to pursue truth because it's part of Christ's calling on our lives as his disciples. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in the second part of verse 14 through 16, uh, we, we're instructed to have no fear, but to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We're told to do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that even if we are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's part of our calling as believers. And we know uh, even as we've seen different aspects of suffering, wishful thinking is not good enough. Wishful thinking will not provide you with a firm foundation when life gets tough. It will not satisfy you when push comes to shove. It won't sustain you where the rubber meets the road. But our faith, our faith in Christ, is built on reality, and therefore it is able to stand up to the tests and the trials of anything that this world can throw at us. I truly do believe that of all the systems of belief and all the worldviews that you can encounter here, the only one that holds up to the scrutiny of the world we live in, of the reality that is, is the Christian faith. I can say that because my hope for the future rests in the proof of the past and even in my own experience here and now. And I'm not alone in that. Our passage this morning is a passage that's intended to challenge you. It's intended to make you tug at the rope of your confidence, to feel how secure our hope in the living God really is. It is intended to, to, to help you see that the hope that holds us fast and anchors our souls is not built on theories or conjecture, but is built on truth and the reality of who God is. The goal of this passage at the end of the day, is to secure your worship and your obedience by directing your gaze to look at the exclusive hope that we have in the exclusive God. Moses beckons us as his readers to see and to know the God who is, the one who made the world and everything that is in it, the one who rules over it, and the one who is bringing about his perfect purposes to pass. The point of this passage is to ground us in the sort of confident hope 
that will lead us into faith-fueled worship and obedience. So as we come to the end of this sermon in a few minutes, I hope you will sing louder. And as we go from this place, you will go with an extra measure of joy in your heart, knowing that the faith you take with you into the world is grounded in truth. That's really what my hope is this morning. My prayer is that God is going to use this passage to that end of fueling our worship and our obedience to him, and that as such, we're going to have a firmer grip on the sure hope that we have received through faith in Christ. So let's begin by reading our passage. If you will, please stand with me as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 43. This is the word of the Lord. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever even heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven, he lets you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth, he lets you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past. He may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, we are four chapters into the book of Deuteronomy. And <clears throat> I realized that that small passage there at the end was a, seemed a little out of sync, maybe, with what we've seen so far. There is a point and a purpose to that. We'll get to that in a second. 
But just as a quick reminder, I know we were out of town last week, so um, it's been two weeks since you've been in the book of Deuteronomy. Just in case you've been forgetting things, I just want to refresh you, remind you that in these four chapters we have seen so far, Moses has been devoting himself really to preparing the people to prepare us to receive and to read the law, the law which they had received from God on Mount Sinai. In that time, in preparing us, Moses has covered a lot of history. And this chapter, chapter 4 in particular, has been devoted to giving us a lot of instruction about how to receive the law, to how to receive what Moses is about to go over. These are instructions for the people in how to live with God as his holy people in the land of his blessing. These are words of life given to God's people. Even so, as Moses is preparing the people to receive these things, he knows that in days ahead, there's going to be a strong temptation for the people he's speaking to and for their children and their children to forsake God and to go after other gods and to fulfill other desires. So this, in this passage, he is warning us not to fall for that. His goal here was to equip the people who were standing before him, and also us by extension, to charge us and them to hold fast to what is good, to hold fast to the Lord who set Israel apart and rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt. Moses, as he speaks to the people, wants to see them thrive in the good land that God is about to bring them into. And the only way they can do that, he makes very clear, is by living in, living by faith, according to what he has commanded them. So the main idea of this passage really comes out, it's really summarized in verse 39, which says, Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. If you get one thing from this passage, that's what you need to get The Lord alone is God. He alone is worthy of your trust, of your love, and of your obedience. That is what I've tried to capture. If you've got those sermon notes, I've tried to capture that in this main statement, our main idea, which is simply this. There is only one God. There is only one God. He alone is worthy of our faith, our love, and our obedience. And in our time this morning, I want to look at three commands, three responses that flow out of that core conviction. So first, we want to look at this this first aspect of knowing the Lord. We are called to know God. Second, we are called to trust in the Lord. And third, we're called to obediently walk in the hope of the Lord. Obediently walk in the hope of the Lord. So, All of that begins with knowing God. And that's our first point, the first thing we want to look at. Now, several years ago, I was involved in a college ministry on the campus of the University of Louisville. It's where Ellie and I met, uh, and we had a grand time serving uh, in that ministry. Uh, Now, one, we had a lot of different things that happened in those meetings, but one in particular I think of, uh, we were in one of our meetings, and I, I happened to look over and notice a student that I did not recognize um, who, was, who was sitting there. 
And the reason she stood out, we had new people all the time, but she stood out in particular because it was obvious she was taking a lot of notes, but not the kind of notes that a person takes when they're like really engaged with what's being said. More of the kind of notes that someone's taking as they're watching and they're observing. And so I thought to myself, this is very interesting. I want to get to the bottom of this. Well, it turned out that she was there at one of our meetings um, because she was on an assignment for one of her classes. Uh, she was a sociology major. Her homework had been uh, to observe one of the religious groups on campus, and for whatever reason, she chose ours. So she was there at the meeting taking notes, making all of her observations for her report, and at the end of the meeting, a few of us who noticed that she was there um, went over and had a conversation with her. And so she asked us a little bit more about what we believed. We asked her about what she believed and had a really interesting conversation. Now, it turned out she was not a Christian. Uh, she didn't deny that there was some sort of force or thing out there, but she didn't really believe uh, that that thing could be known. In fact, as we got a little deeper into our conversation, she told me that from the way she saw it, it was as if we were in some sort of a hallway that had been made up with all sorts of different panes of different stained glass, which she said kind of uses, we talked about, those were different religions, different worldviews. And so there was this light which people could see that was shining outside this hallway, that was shining into it, but everyone was really looking through their pane of glass. And so no one could really know what that light was like because the glass in front of them colored it. And I thought that was actually a really interesting uh, idea. And actually, I thought it was a pretty helpful illustration for at least helping me understand where she was coming from. Why even when, why she, she held that even when different religions contradict each other, she thought they could still be equally true. Now, as I heard that, I thought, you know, I think she's on to something. She, she understood that we do view the world through a certain lens that colors our perspective. And if three people watch a car accident, you're going to get three different reports about what happened. The fact of the matter is that that's a problem. It means that left on our own, none of us has a right view of God. So I told her, actually, I, I agreed with her on that part. But then I got to share the good news of the gospel with her. And I told her, look, I, what the Bible tells me, what I, what I believe is that the light outside the hallway didn't stay outside. It didn't stay outside to just let men and women just grope about and try to feel their way to him or, or try to approach him on their own. No, he entered in. He broke in. And he has revealed himself in his word and in his work. And as we look at this passage, we find that's exactly what Moses is talking to the nation of Israel about right here. God means for us to know him. He created us for that purpose. He made us in his image, and he has taken steps to reveal himself in his integrity to us. That is the reason we can say true things about the God who is. He has revealed those things to us. As the creator of the world and as the author of history, God tells us how he has constructed the world and designed it to declare his glory. And so as Moses is telling Israel to trust the Lord, we find he also challenges his listeners to come 
and to sit at the feet of the past, to ask it for its wisdom, to test this. Ask yourselves if this is true. In verse 32, he explains to us why we can trust the faithfulness of God in his promises for the future. And so what he says to us is this. Moses says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, from the very beginning, since the day God created man on the earth, and ask it from one end of heaven to the other. So look at everything. Go to the ends of the earth. Look at all of history and ask whether such a great thing has ever happened or ever even been heard of. And then he asks us, he gives us two questions to ask of the past. First, he says, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire the way that you heard it and live? That's the first question. Second question, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? by a hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So, scour history, Moses tells the people. Look from one end of the earth to the other. Look at all the different peoples. Have you ever heard of anyone who has experienced remotely what you have experienced yourself? There are a lot of people And there are a lot of claims about a lot of things. And a lot of people claiming to have experienced a lot of different things. Claiming to have special insight. But never has the world seen anything the way that Israel, of what, like what Israel experienced when they were rescued by God out of Egypt. Where he made his covenant with them on the mountain. That experience stands out in all the different histories of the world, all the different perspectives, all the different views of the different gods and how we got here and how we relate, all those different things. This stands out. Similar to what Moses said at the beginning of of chapter 4, we see that Moses is, is taking Israel to two places, two places to ground their faith, to establish them in the reality of the God who is so that they won't, in turn, be tempted to run off after false, the false gods of the nations that are going to surround them. He's trying to ground them in truth so they won't fall to lies. First, we see that he takes Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they experienced firsthand God speaking to them, declaring to them His law. You can read about that in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 in detail. We, hear, we see there how God declared to His people His way of life, instructing them how to live as a holy people before Him. God spoke not just to Moses, not just through Moses, but to the whole nation. They saw the fire. They felt the earth shake beneath them. They heard the voice of the Lord declare to them His statutes. That experience showed them two things. First, it showed them that God desired for His people to know Him. Not just to know things about Him, not just to know Him remotely, but to know Him experientially. Those gods, uh, God, well, sorry, God 
shows in doing so that he's not like the false gods of the nations. Those gods were made up by the imagination of human minds. They were carved out and formed by human hands. They were made in human images, they, but they neither saw nor heard nor eat. No, they do not smell. They are not, but God is. And to show Israel that he is, he revealed himself by speaking to them. They didn't have to guess about what God was like because he broke through that barrier. He did that by sending his own word, his own testimony of himself to them. And as he did, the light of his glory pierced the darkness. As Israel beheld God in his purity, in his self-revelation, they learned through experience that God is a God of great mercy. The fire on that mountain was pure and holy. That is what Moses expressed when he said that the Lord is a consuming fire who is jealous for his glory. His holiness cannot abide sin. Israel was warned, do not put one foot on the mountain or you will die. But even as God exposed Israel to the pure fire of his presence there on the mountain, even as he spoke to them in the thunder of his pure words and speech, he did not consume them, did he? No, like the burning bush, the fire that appeared to them on the mountain was a most pure fire, the kind that only the Creator God could make, that needed no fuel, no air, no foreign element to function, but was pure and holy and just and yet merciful. You heard God speak, Moses tells the people, but you didn't die. That, that reality that is the reality of who God is. He is merciful. He has revealed himself. He has spoken. He has shown us the purity of who he is. He is not silent. Therefore, we can know him, and we must know him according to what he has revealed. A second place that Moses takes the people here to ground them in their faith is back to Egypt, back to the way that God redeemed them from their slavery. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself, Moses asks, let alone from the midst of another nation by doing all the things that you watch the Lord God do for you? Uh, no. The answer is no. What God did in Egypt was unthinkable. It defied everything that people expected. In the ancient way of thinking, gods were regional. They were limited to places. They had a sphere of influence, but that was it. Unlike the so-called gods of the nations, God had shown that his sovereignty was not limited to any one place, but that he controlled the whole world. An enemy is most dangerous when they're on their home turf. God took on Egypt with all of its so-called powerful gods, and piece by piece, he dismantled them they were powerless before him. He took his fight for his people to the very hearth and home of the Egyptians, to the very altars of their gods. He took them on at the very height of their power, and then he crumpled them up like a piece of paper. He showed that he is a God who hears the cries of his people, who keeps steadfast promises to them, who never flags or fails. 
He redeemed Israel in such a way to show the world that he and he alone is God. Even the iron furnace of Egypt was not enough to contain his people. And as Israel was in Egypt, they were never out of God's domain. The heavens and the earth and everything under the earth belong to him. He is God. He and he alone. So Moses has taken us with Israel two places. To see God's word and to see God's work. The answer to these two questions is plain to see. No one has ever done anything like this. No one has ever claimed that their God ever did this. And so Moses tells the people, you yourselves are witnesses of this. Verse, the second part of verse 34, Moses says, The Lord your God did all these things before your eyes. To you it was shown. Why? That you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. This is a pattern we see throughout the Bible. God reveals himself in his word, and he reveals himself in his work. I like the way that Peter Craig puts it when he says simply, the knowledge of God for the Israelites sprang from God's revelation of himself in word and in deed. What that means for us, quite simply, is this. God is a God who means for you to know him. We know him through what he has revealed about himself. The reason that you and I can say with confidence and can believe anything about God with any degree of accuracy is not because we've somehow managed to logically figure it out. It's not because we're smarter than anyone. It's because God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has spoken. Second, the second thing this means for us is it means that God is a God who means for us not only to know true things about him, but to actually know him, to experience him, to, to have a relationship with him. Israel got to experience that. They weren't God's people just because they had a, a, a book that told them true things about God. They were God's people because he called them out, because he saved them, because he gave them his word, but he also gave them himself. They saw the effects of that. They saw the fire of God's presence on the mountain, but they weren't consumed. They heard his voice speak to them, but they did not die. They watched the mighty hand of God work time after time to save them while he destroyed their enemies. This was something to cling to as they went into the land. The thing that made the land a place of blessing wasn't just that it had been promised by God to their fathers or that it was full of every blessing they could even ask for. The thing that made it a blessing was that God was going with them into the land to dwell there with them as their God. He was going to be with them. He had appointed them to know him and he had made himself known to them to be a people who would make him known as they shone like a city on a hill into a dark world, beckoning the world to come and to see the glory of the God who is. That's what Moses is pointing the people to. 
He's reminding them to remain steadfast and true to the Lord, to seek after him, to forsake the allure of those other gods that the other nations around them served, to serve and to know the one true living God who had spoken and who had rescued them and set them apart for his own name's sake. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is in addition to knowing God, we're also called to trust in the Lord. The Lord showed the world that he and he alone is. God, through what he did for Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, uh, was doing more than just flexing his muscles. This had a purpose. When God called Israel out, he called them to be his people. And so in verses 35 through 39, Moses tells Israel that God had a purpose in calling them to himself. In verse 36, he says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. Now notice that word, that's a very interesting word, because we learn from the book of Hebrews that God disciplines his children. He loves them. He also says, And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Now, the key thing I want you to see there is the emphasis that Moses is putting here on rightly responding to the powerful way that God had worked for Israel. There in verse 39, you see the knowledge of God coming up again. Know that the Lord is God. There is no other. But more than just simply knowledge, Moses also tells the people to lay it to their hearts, to internalize it, to digest it, to plant it deep inside their very person. That is something that goes much deeper than just recognizing that the Lord alone is God. This is something that goes to the very core of what a person is. It's, it's something that, that comes to define your own identity. It's something that, that, that comes to be there because of the relationship which exists between God and His people. It's truth which springs into life and then results in a relationship of reliance and trust. That is key here. Because if Israel was going to be faithful to God in the land He's giving them, if they were going to obey Him, which we're going to get to in a moment, it had to start somewhere. That obedience had to start in the heart with the will and the desires. It's not enough just to know that the Lord is God. Satan knows that God and God alone is God, but he still hates God. If we're to live with God as his people, if we're going to have a right relationship with God, we have to know God on another level. We have to have a right heart. The heart has to know and revere God as God. It has to love Him before it's going to offer itself up freely the way it ought to to do His commands. Loving God is the 
key command of the law. You can't keep the law and not love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus tells us that is that in that in loving God and loving your neighbor, the whole law is fulfilled. The greatest problem that was going to face Israel as they enter the land was not going to be the height of the fortresses they were going to fight against. It was not going to be the fierceness of those enemy swords and spears and arrows. The greatest threat to them was their own heart and their own stiff necks. It was the sinful nature that was in them because of the fall. The same nature that we were born with as well. So as we come to verse 39, I think we've really arrived at the core issue, the heart of the issue. God had revealed himself to these men and women on the mountain. They heard his voice. They had all the evidence they needed to know that there's only one God. They saw and they were in awe of his holiness. They had begged God to just speak to Moses and have Moses speak to them because they were afraid. They had seen firsthand of how the way that the hand of God had worked to rescue them from people who were more powerful than them. But mere knowledge wasn't going to be enough. Knowledge of God must fuel faith in God. So Moses makes it very clear that as, as we ask these questions of the past, as we weigh the evidence, as we see how God has displayed His power in calling, in rescuing, in speaking, we all, that we also recognize that God has, called, God has called us to trust Him. God set His love on these people. He exposed them to the excellence of His glory. He gave them His commands and promised to be with them. But in the end, the thing that Israel needed the most was something deeper. They needed a new heart. They needed a heart of faith. And so that brings us to our third point, obedience to the Lord, obediently hoping in God. Moses began this passage calling us to look at the past, to weigh the evidence, to see that the Lord and the Lord alone is God, accepting that what he has said is true, that faith, that, that faith rests on the reality of how God has revealed himself throughout history through his word and through his work, and looking at that, we have discovered that God is a God who desires and delights in having a relationship with His people. A relationship which is built on His grace and purpose for His glory, which results in our joy and our satisfaction. And accordingly, Moses shows us that God is also a God who is to be obeyed. So in verse 40, he says, Therefore, so since the Lord is God and there is no other, Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commands, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So, the right response to the reality of who God is and of what he has done, the response of faith is obedience. Jesus told his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the defining feature of a citizen of the kingdom of God is that they love God and they love to do what he commands. They do not find the commands of the Lord to be a burden but a delight because that son, that daughter, knows that the commands of the Lord are light and life. They're their very food. Moses didn't just start out here telling the people to do a list of rules. 
He starts here by reminding them of the gravity and the glory of who God is. He takes them back to those events that have defined them as a nation, as a people. He took them back to Sinai. He took them back to Egypt, reminding them how dedicated and how rich God's love towards them is and was. And then he takes them to their own hearts and he tells them to lay that reality of who God is upon it. And then once that heart is in the right place, he tells them to bear the fruit of obedience, to walk in the way of life. Actually, in verses 41 through 43, Moses gives an example of what that looks like. Now, that's initially, I think this passage just seems like way out of like, why are we talking about cities of refuge? Well, I think Moses, after telling the people to walk and to obey the commands, he starts off by demonstrating to them what that looks like by by starting right here right now with faithfulness he gives them an example of what it looks like to obey the lord out of the faith and trust in who he is he sets these cities on the which were on the eastern side of the jordan river up for the people so they could go ahead and start obeying the commands of the law there's no lapse in this it's right now obedience right now even before Moses goes over the law with the people, he's already giving them an example of what it looks to respond rightly, teaching them that God is to be obeyed and adored. So the stage is being set. The people are ready to be reminded of the law. They're ready to go in, and they're ready to receive what God had prepared for them. So as we think about what this passage means for us, it's not difficult to see how God has taken what Moses said to those people so many years ago and has elevated it in Christ for us. This morning we've seen three really key truths, three commands, three right responses. We've seen that God means for us to know Him. He means for us to trust Him. He means for us to obey Him. The problem, which the rest of Israel's history tells us, is that our efforts will always fall short of rightly responding to this great God. Our hearts are not good. We have all gone after other things to satisfy our hearts. We have all acted corruptly against God. Our sin has blinded our hearts and deadened them. And therefore, we trust in other things. We trust ourselves. We put our trust in things that are tangible to us. We love ourselves more than we love others and more than we love God, and we love our sin. So time and time again, we continue to break God's commands. But this is where what God revealed about himself matters so much. This is where when God revealed the purity of who he is and also revealed the mercy of who he is, that that knowledge is so important The same love and mercy God showed to Israel, even on Mount Sinai, comes into play. Though we deserve to be cast out and abandoned to the consequences of our sin, God, hallelujah, has not abandoned us. Instead, this is what he says in Jeremiah 31. After Israel fails to keep everything that Moses tells them to do, this is what he says, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is the promise. And that is the promise which has come to pass in Jesus Christ. That knowledge, that salvation has come. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It has come through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the very Word of God made flesh. For as John tells us in the prologue of his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Those are the most, some of the most glorious words in the Bible, friends. Because it takes everything that we thirst for as we hear Moses speak to the people and say, Know the Lord, trust the Lord, love the Lord, obey the Lord. And then we look at the history of Israel and we go, Ah! And we see our own disobedience reflected in their disobedience. We go, Ah! And then we look at John 1 and we see that the Word has made God known to us. That, that He is the one who broke that glass and entered in and then pulled us out into His reality. That's the Gospel. It's right here. Jesus is able to give us that right heart. And He's able to do that because He took our sin on His shoulders and He paid for that sin on the cross. He is, he is the one who gives us a right heart and puts a new spirit in us that is eager to obey. He is the one who makes God known to us, who, who sets us up in a right relationship with God, who brings light into darkness, faithfulness to the unfaithful, and hope to those who were lost in despair. Jesus is the light of the world who entered that dark tunnel and is shown into the hearts of his people calling them to come to him and to live. Our faith isn't guesswork. It, it's still hope because the fullness of the promise of what Jesus said is still yet to come, right? We still live in a fallen world. We're still waiting on the kingdom of God to come in its fullness and yet we're experiencing that reality here and now. Our hope is founded on something that is concrete and immovable. That's why we never despair. That's why we have a living hope. Our hope is living because it's in a living Savior and a living King who is reigning and ruling on His throne. From where we are in this fallen world, it can be really hard to hold fast to the truth. There's a lot of evil things in this world and there's a lot of darkness that's still there. But all of that, remember, is a temporary thing. Like when a cloud blocks the sun for a moment, but is burned away by it. That is the way the darkness in this world is. The foundation of our hope has already been laid. 
It's already been accomplished in the work of Jesus. And the promises of God never fail. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubts or with fear, or if you're here and it just kind of feels like a chore, let me just remind you of your history. Sit at the feet of the past. Has any God ever rescued his people like this? Has any person ever managed to reach some point of enlightenment where they just had so much knowledge that they were satisfied? No. No, but this satisfies. This has held up to the scrutiny of thousands of years. The best and brightest minds have tried to pick it apart and they failed every single time. So let me encourage you this morning. Take fresh strength. There is much work to be done. We're still here. But God is going to bring this to completion and he will give you the grace you need right now. He will give you the grace you need at 8 o'clock tomorrow. And he will give you the grace you need in the coming week. And he will give you the grace you need for the rest of your life until either he brings you to himself or he comes to us. Because of Christ, we have come to know God, to know he is faithful. Because of Christ, we have been equipped to trust God. And because of Christ, we have been called to obey God. So let's strive, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God to go on living in that grace. And let us praise our God for the sure hope that we have in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come this morning before you and just confess that it sometimes, Father, our our hearts and our minds just take you for granted. To take the knowledge of the gospel for granted. So, Father, it's easy for our minds and for our hearts to wander It's easy for our hearts and our minds to to want to establish extra securities, to to shore up confidences. God, keep us from that. Other saviors promise so much, but they can't deliver. You have delivered and you will deliver. So I pray, Father, please protect your flock this week. Secure us in the true knowledge of who you are. Give us the strength and the energy that we need to serve you. Give us hearts that that are eager to trust you and eager to obey. And let Christ be exalted as the king he is in the hearts of everyone we meet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response, we have, I think, a very appropriate song to sing in A Mighty Fortress. As you know, tomorrow is Reformation Day. So let's sing this great Luther hymn and let's exalt our fortress who is Christ. Let's, let's sing. Oh